Right, good afternoon everybody uh, and welcome back to this first uh, seminar of, uh, of this summer term. I'm delighted uh, to welcome Giovanna Del Orto uh, uh, for this afternoon's seminar. Giovanna is, uh, well she has a background as a professional journalist but she's currently an associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Journalism. Have I got that right? Yes you do. Good, okay, excellent. Uh, and her particular area of interest and research is around international reporting and its impact on public opinion and international relations. She's author of this book, AP Foreign Correspondence in Action. More details and links is available if it, if it um, hits your sweet buttons there. Uh, World War II to the present day. We may be joined during the course of the seminar by the AP's Europe editor, Nico Bryce, who is going to try and be here but hasn't quite made it yet. So if somebody wanders in and sits down, uh, <laughs> that, that's that what would that be is. interesting to have him here as well because he can, he can uh, contribute, pick up to the conversation as well. But uh, Giovanna, absolutely delighted that you've, uh, you've joined you. us today and, and over to you. Well, thank you so much, Richard and David and James, of course, and Louise has been terrific and I'm delighted to be here. Um, I particularly am delighted to be with the fellows and I look forward to the Q&A, so I'll try to keep this relatively short, although this is a topic I feel very strongly about, so you might have to, you know, literally pull the plug on the laptop to make me stop, but otherwise I will try. Um, I also, um, in chapter eight, I have a subsection that starts with my friend, the competition, and it occurs to me that it's a good place to start because this is a book about AP published by Cambridge University Press, which I am presenting at the Reuters Institute at Oxford. So it really, I think, says something about the collegiality of journalism, which is no joke. I mean, despite the reputation for lone wolves. At any rate, I decided to embark on this project um, about AP foreign correspondence, because at least in the United States, the profession of foreign correspondence is retrenching and in crisis as the vast majority of mainstream news media are struggling to stay financially viable um, to survive. And I find that that is, uh, and I find that that is a very critical danger um, to not only public understanding but to foreign policy making as well. And the reason for that, and I promise this is the most boringly academic thing I'm going to throw at you, <laughs> is that in other research that I have published, um, I have found that essentially foreign news are one of the major actors in shaping the foreign policy permissibility parameters which is kind of like she sells seashells thing. But yes, the, the, by, by policy permissibility parameters, all I mean is that by constructing certain images of other countries and of other major issues, foreign correspondents are one of the actors that help shape the boundaries of the possible ranges of, of, of uh, policies and of understandings. And therefore, to make you know, a very complicated uh, uh, argument very simple, you could say that the more restricted the coverage, for whatever reason, the less nuanced the debate, with catastrophic consequences for when action inevitably follows. Now, a lot has been written in literature about the impact of foreign news on foreign policymaking, but virtually nothing has been done before on what makes foreign news what it is, the actual practices that have shaped the production of foreign news. And that's what I wanted to write about. And this is why I decided to do this. Now I picked, let me explain why I picked the Associated Press and a little bit of the context, which is important given how international this audience is. Um, I wanted to focus on a news agency because, hi Nico, come on in. That, that being Nico Price, whom we just talked about. Um, come and take a seat. Most especially delighted, apparently the world has not blown up since you could join us, so that's a good thing. Um, I decided to focus on the AP 
on a news agency for one particular reason. And that is, like any good journalist, I wanted a story that hadn't been done before. And uh, if you look at the literature, it's the New York Times, the Washington Post, the BBC, Al Jazeera, Le Monde, you name it. Choose your big newspaper, big network. <laughs> but it's virtually never writers, uh, Agence France Presse, AP, etc. While the wire services are so incredibly important in shaping what the ordinary person outside of the elites, outside of the circles of power, will understand about the rest of the world. The reason why I chose an American-based news agency, which has increasingly become international in its uh, uh, imprint, but ha is rooted, at the very least, is based in New York City and historically has been uh, um, focused on the US public, is because my research, my larger research, looks at the impact, again, of foreign news on foreign policy. And frankly, for, for better or for worse, and we can discuss this later, uh, Washington has been pretty much calling the shots for the last eight decades, which is the lifespan, by the way, of the people that I have actually interviewed. Um, so what I did is that I went behind the scene to, to tell the story behind the stories. And I traveled around the world, quite literally, I mean, from London and Washington to, you know, the countryside outside is Islamabad, to interview 61 foreign correspondents. Uh, one of them is sitting at my left, so that is wonderful. Um, now, you might say 61, that's not a lot. Uh, however, combined, they work for the Associated Press for 1,710 years. So I feel pretty confident that this is a good body of work to analyze. And of course, each has published thousands of stories. Now, let me just give you a sense for some of the people that I interviewed. This is Max Desfor. Um, all I knew about him when I went to interview him is that he had won a Pulitzer Prize for coverage of refugees in the Korean War, in the picture that you see literally right above his head of, of refugees streaming across the bridge. So I called him, left a message, and I thought, uh-oh, I have a name that's hard to understand, I have an accent. If you want a Pulitzer in 51, he's probably a little bit senior. This is going to take forever to arrange. Five minutes later, my mobile phone rings. Is this Giovanna? perfectly pronounced. I'm like, yes. So this is Max. I got your message. I'd be delighted to help you out. The only thing is the data you propose doesn't really work because uh, you see I'm throwing a party for my 99th birthday that night. <laughs> um, so of course we were scheduled. And we talked about some of the major you know, adventures that he had covering uh, uh, truly historic occasions, including the one that you see uh, in the other two pictures, which is the Japanese coming in to sign the Instrument of Surrender in 1945 aboard the USS Missouri. Now, here's an interesting story. Um, he had positioned himself behind the American officers, behind the table, so that he could see you know, and, and shoot the Japanese incoming, you know, coming in. Except, of course, all the best plans, right? Uh, a row of very tall sailors came and stood right in front of him. <laughs> and at this point, this is again 1945, all he could do, he didn't have that, all he could do was lift up his Leica, shoot, as he put it, Hail Mary, give the film to a you know, uh, US pilot that was going back to the United States and hope that he had got the shot, the shot of the end of World War II. Now, that gives you an idea of how much technology has changed reporting practices, and we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, it also changed uh, war correspondence, which continues to remain a staple, although I will make the case it is absolutely not the only kind of news, and very often when we're talking about foreign correspondence, we're talking about war correspondence, but I, I hate to confuse the two because that's, that's not exactly the same thing. Uh, the person with the big press thing that you see there, uh, his name is Dennis Gray. He has done uh, about a dozen embeds, and I hope that maybe in the Q&A we can talk about the, the, the practice of embedding, uh, which I think raises all sorts of issues in, in war coverage. But of course, it's not all bad news. 
there should be good news too, right? Um, the person that you see right there, well, I'm sorry, the pictures are not, not showing up very nicely, but um, her name is Donna Bryson and she's there in Johannesburg covering the first uh, multi-racial election in South Africa, which of course produced Nelson Mandela and the, uh, the official end of apartheid in 1994. I should point out that Donna was the only interviewee of the 61 who actually cried remembering a good occasion. <laughs> Uh, in the interviews, which was precisely that. It was her uh, watching the inaug Mandela's inauguration on a small TV screen in a family home in Soweto and watching how the family had sort of raised their fist when the uh, national anthem was being played and then watch Mandela put his hand over his heart and therefore lowering it and putting their hands over their hearts as well. So again, there are obviously uh, good news as well. And what I, my aim was not just to get war stories, uh, which were fascinating as obviously I think this gives you a taste for, but it was really to analyze the evolution of foreign correspondence practices over the last eight decades. Um, and also to come to some conclusion as to why I think it is essential uh, that not only these practices continue to be observed, uh, but also that we have foreign correspondence, which is you know, a bit of a question mark and, and I think an important one. Now, what I found is that there were, you know, some major changes in the digital era. Uh, so for the last, you know, 10, 15 years, and I want to somewhat briefly touch upon them. And again, I hope we can pick them up in the Q&A. Um, one is, and perhaps this is the most important one, and I think non-journalists might, might have the hardest time understanding this, is that it has become infinitely easier to get the story out. So that reporters and correspondents can spend proportionately more time going farther and staying out longer on the scene because they no longer have to worry about finding what were, you know, the pigeons. You guys are familiar with the term? The idea that literally you had to stop some random person at an airport and go like, here's an envelope with film and, you know, a telex ready uh, uh, form. Please take it to whichever country you're flying to, an AP person will meet you at the airport uh, because either there was censorship in that country or simply there was no infrastructure to get the story out. That's really no longer a problem. I mean, there is Wi-Fi in Kandahar. I mean, it's, it's you know, we're, we're good with that. To some extent, there is less censorship, but I'm saying to some extent, because unfortunately, digital technologies can also be used to, in fact, augment surveillance and censorship. So that is, you know, yes, you don't have somebody with a machine gun standing over you at a telex, but there are, you know, no less nefarious ways of controlling the flow of information digitally. Um, another really important point is that we have a sort of a new definition of Vox Pop, of Vox Populis, which of course, you know, the term. And as one of the correspondents I interviewed pulled it, it is now pushed instead of pulled. It used to be that if you wanted to know the average person thought, you had to go out and, you know, talk to the people waiting at the train station or in line, you know, or whatever. Now you could call it from uh, uh, social media. However, that's a self-selective sample. Who are the people that are on social media? Why are they reacting? So yes, you can use it. Yes, it's a terrific resource, but how are you gonna get to the people that don't have that kind of presence? Um, how are you gonna get to the people that you are selecting as opposed to being self-selected? And again, we'll get back to this point. The, if you will, negative downside is that the pressure to file immediately and competitively, <clears throat> which has always been paramount for uh, Reuters, the AP, uh, the news agencies much more than virtually anybody else is now increased, you know, a thousandfold. It's, we talked about this yesterday. I mean, their deadlines are now measured, measured in seconds past. <laughs> you know, if you have a scoop by two minutes, that's huge. Um, obviously, the question is how much do you, time do you wait to make sure that the information you have is actually correct? 
Uh, what if you know a source puts out, you know, in, in, in the competition puts out a story, and uh, you're behind. If they turn out to be right, you're sort of in trouble. If they turn out to be wrong, then you know you're you're hailed as as wonderful. But there is really a lot more pressure. Um, and again, we can talk about this in the Q and A. Finally, there is a lot less distance between editors and correspondents, and between correspondents and their audience. And this can cut both ways, uh, in a, in a positive way. Um, Obviously, there is you know, more communication, more ways of understanding, but there is also, to some extent, more control and a lot more intimidation. Um, and there have been major smear campaigns uh, against virtually all journalists. I mean, I wrote, for heaven's sake, a travel story for the AP on traveling to Morocco as a woman by myself. I mean, it's a travel story, you know, which is, frankly, as soft as softball as it gets. And I got massive hate feeds online on Yahoo, etc., um, that were very personal. And when I'm saying very personal on the word, the type of thing like you clearly went there to get raped, so I'm sorry it didn't happen to you. That's, that's what we're talking about. Incidentally, for female journalists, it is worse than for male journalists. There are studies that show that. So there is a question, and I can talk about some of the examples, not about me, but some of the more serious examples about um, Twitter campaign and social media campaign that are put out by particular political actors to detract from uh, the information and how nefarious those, uh, those efforts can be. And finally, I guess this is a little bit of a downer on changes in the digital era, I'm sorry. Um, we discussed this before. Um, the public's growing inability to distinguish where news, where information is coming from. The fact that you know, your friend's selfie pops into place in the social media feed right before the AP story, right before some other random, you know, video that God only knows whom put up. Um, that has become really an issue um, because again, lack of trust in journalists, and I'm sure we've, we've all experienced this professionally, uh, can just increase the constraints and the dangers that journalists face. I would argue that at this point, particularly now for mainstream legacy media, accuracy and verification can actually become competitive advantages. If you can actually show that you've got that, if you can build a brand, so to speak, that people will know is, is trustworthy, um, you know, then maybe that, that, that will become the advantage that you have over the selfie and over the random you know, online posting, etc. Now, what I found striking, however, um, is that there were more continuities than changes. And I covered, I mean, again, we started with World War II. And yet, and yet, I thought that the essentials really hadn't changed. And what are these essentials? And I'll break them down to you in a second. But first of all, yes, you do need foreign correspondents. And foreign correspondents need to have the time, the experience, ideally the language skills, uh, and a network of local colleagues. Uh, I don't think any of the correspondents I've talked to uh, had much positive to say about just parachuting in and out. You always try to either be in country long enough or at the very least to develop your network of, of local journalists and local sources. And then the second essential point is to have those foreign correspondents be able to call out the omnipresent lies, to see through the path and sort of grand storylines that are pandered and spun by political actors and others, and to face down, and I mean it quite literally, the increasingly violent efforts of all of those who really dislike the idea of having eyewitnesses that are capable of reaching billions of others daily 
with their truthful accounts. So what unfortunately became, you know, sort of a, a thread through the book was that there have been just a maze of constraints um, the foreign correspondents have had to face across what I call the three principal practices. And the very first one, which is kind of obvious, but there it is, is recognizing what's a story. And what is interesting there is what I kept hearing, and again, this is pretty much constant through time, although it has become worse because of the, the increased power of the audience of, of being in touch and determining content, is the tension between what journalists want to report about because they know, being there, that it's important, indicative, uh, substantial, and what they know will sell. And this is true even in some of the most closed off, least known countries in the world. And the example I like to bring up of that, and I don't think you can argue it, is North Korea. We even have stereotypes about North Koreans, if you think about that. And again, we know virtually nothing about it because it's such a closed off country. But uh, Jean Lee, who opened the AP's first bureau in, in Pyongyang four years ago, told me that, okay, so there is a performance with Mickey Mouse characters. So you cover that. Because, you know, it's Mickey Mouse in North Korea, so it will sell, so people will like that, bless you. Uh, but then there are the stories that you really want to write. And as an example of the second one, she gave me what you see a picture of, uh, which is essentially the evolution of consumer culture in Pyongyang, of all places. And here's how she put it. The first time I went there, it was a very Soviet method of shopping. You take a little paper to the cashier, pay for it. She gives you another slip back. You take it back to the counter, and they give you whatever it was that you asked for. But in 2011, they were introducing a new form of shopping, which is they put things on a shelf, and you browse, and you pick and choose what it is you want, and there was a price on it, and you take it to the cash register, and they ring you up. Obviously familiar to us, but not there. I did think it was really important to write about this, this emerging consumer culture, because it's part of the evolution. But the stories that tend to be really popular are much more about not how the country is changing, but the kind of stereotypical stories about how weird they are. Now, one way to make important stories palatable is to find those global repercussions. In the case of an American audience, you know, why does this matter to the United States? Or more broadly, why does it matter to terrorism, uh, the Cold War, whatever the big, inter you know, climate change, whatever the big issue of the day might be. Another way to do that, um, perhaps the most critical way, is to focus on the human aspect, connecting through shared humanity, if you will. And uh, I don't want to embarrass him, but I will. Um, I think I will quote an example from what Nico told me. And here's a picture of him uh, in Rolando Rodriguez, Nicaragua, where the entire village had been wiped away by a mudslide in the aftermath of Hurricane Mitch in 1998. Now, I remember being very struck when I interviewed Nico by the fact that he told me without hesitating, when I asked, what was your favorite story? He mentioned this. Now that doesn't strike me as something that you recall, you know, as, as a positive memory. But then the answer was, so I asked, you know, why? And I remember you're telling me that it was because you felt that because you were there and telling a story, one of the very few people doing so in 98 for an international audience, that you gave people elsewhere a chance to care. So let me quote from that. A mountain had basically fallen away and came roaring down and covered a couple of villages. And we spent the next, a photographer, and Nico spent the next 10 days basically wading through mud and fields of bodies. I guess because that's not just mud. It wiped away a village, so. Uh, that had been swept down the mountain and just rotting in the sun. And it was an awful scene. But again, there were the personal stories that made it come home. There was the body of a girl wearing a frilly little dress in the middle of the mud on a plank of wood rotting. And going back and saying, that's a very powerful image, and let's figure out what happened there and getting the whole story. But you don't have to know that you're in Nicaragua, and you don't have to know who these people are to read that story and to get the emotional power of it. 
And that's how you can bring it alive to people very far away. So let me quote just a line, a couple of lines from the story to see if you agree that this is how you uh, bring it alive. Uh, Angel Narvaez, 27, spotted a child lying on top of the muck and saw her chest move. It was 11-year-old Marta Pantaleon, a distant cousin. One neighbor slogged into chest-high mud and dragged Marta to firmer soil. In still pouring rain, he placed her frail body on a plank of wood. Her right arm drooped limply on the ground. From the search group, Marta's older brother, Manuel, ran to her side. Martita, Martita, he sobbed repeatedly. Her eyes slowly fixed on his, but she couldn't respond. Narvaez and the others struggled on, pulling four more people from the mud before returning for Marta. Manuel was still at her side, but her chest wasn't moving anymore. They left her where she lay so they could carry the living to safety. On Thursday, with a light drizzle falling, she was still there, her frilly pink dress pulled over her face and flies buzzing around her stomach. The stench was almost unbearable. Now, needless to say, in order to do all of this, you have to get to the second essential practice, which is getting, developing, finding, getting sources to trust you. Or, as another correspondent put it to me, what you've got to do is get somewhere where you can ask somebody a question. Now, that is a tremendously time-consuming and increasingly dangerous task. For one thing, you never know how the people you're approaching might react to a Westerner, a foreigner, a person of different sex, a person of a different race, all of which could be traps you fall into, even very dangerous ones. But even more interesting, it can be <coughs> dangerous for the sources to be seen talking to you. And that is what many correspondents have actually struggled with. In this picture, you see Terrell Jones in Tiananmen Square a few days before the uh, crackdown in June of 1989. And he told me when I interviewed him almost 25 years later in Beijing, where he was still working at the time for Reuters, by the way, that he still was agonizing over what had happened to the people that in those heady pro-democracy days when everybody really thought the regime was going to fall and this was going to be wonderful, um, he had fully identified them. You know, so-and-so, a third-year student at such-and-such university who comes from such-and-such -such town, and then you never hear of this person again. So this is what he told me. Were there people arrested because of AP stories or photos? Were people executed because of them, or tortured, or maimed, or beaten so that they couldn't walk again? Or were they separated from their families? Were their families persecuted? It's all possible. And that is the real, the haunting legacy. The people I've interviewed and people I've met for just a brief moment and today might suffer really unspeakable consequences as a result. I am certain there are those who did and will just never know. And it does make me feel guilty sometimes when I'm just having a good time or if I'm enjoying traveling or being with my kids or taking them to see their grandparents or taking them even to Beijing Zoo. I just don't know how lucky or fortunate I might be compared to what kind of misfortune I might have facilitated. That, I think, is the true tragedy that all reporters who were part of that coverage took part of, unknowingly and unintentionally, but inevitably. Now again, many have argued that social media are changing the equation, that you don't really need anymore the reporters going out there because, you know, they could have put out uh, no, wait, if it were China, they still couldn't have put out a lot of stuff, could they? Um, but at any rate, you know, they could have a profile on Facebook or, you know, be tweeting something. So is there a need to endanger people by showing up, you know, with a microphone and a tape recorder and a notebook? Well, I would argue actually yes, because what real foreign correspondents do is not troll Facebook for a quote. 
is to give a chance to people whose face have never been seen and maybe never will to actually have their voices heard. And the most literal example I could find of, of this is when uh, Kathy Gannon, whom you see here sitting in the shirt, bright striped shirt there, and uh, her colleague, uh, photojournalist Anya Nidringhaus, traveled to Taliban-controlled Kandahar in 2013 to interview the survivors of a U.S. soldiers who had gone on a rampage and killed 16 Afghans. Um, He's been court-martialed and serving life without parole. Um, one of the people that Kathy really and Anya wanted to get to, it's really hard to tell, to see her, but that's, I guess, kind of the point, was Masuma, who had been widowed in the, um, in the attack. And she literally always talked with them behind a shawl. Her face was never, you know, they, they never could see her face. She would have never been allowed, obviously, to go anywhere else. That's why they went to her. So let's very, for just a minute here, listen to a short clip, if I can do this. Hold on, sorry, here we go. Um, about what Kathy said about how to get to these type of sources. So it's a bit of a, of a downer, maybe you have already, uh, to say the least, maybe you have already, you're already familiar with the story, but I should point out that uh, Kathy and Anya had just come back from this assignment when I flew to Islamabad um, to interview Kathy, and we ended up spending a lovely weekend in Islamabad. It sounds like a joke, but actually you can have a lovely weekend in Islamabad. Um, and, and Anya was there as well because they were getting ready to go out to Afghanistan again. And then less than a year later, uh, on Friday, April 4th of 2014, they were again in Afghanistan, um, in coast, um, on the, the eastern side, really volatile provinces because it was the eve of the national elections and they wanted to make sure to cover it from where it happened as opposed to from Kabul. And as they were waiting inside a police compound for the convoy of electoral workers to go out in the countryside, uh, one of the police commanders that was charged with protecting the convoy grabbed a machine gun from one of his subordinates and fired on them uh, point blank as they sat in the back of their car. Um, Anya, who was 48, was killed instantly. Um, Kathy was very severely injured uh, and has only in the last couple of months uh, gone back um, to work in, in the region, uh, based again in Pakistan. So, um, you know, again, I hate to be a downer, but there are very, very real costs that are associated with what I am talking about here as, you know, practices. Well, yes, but again, we should be mindful of what, unfortunately, this could actually mean. In fact, one of the things that I was struck by, and this is the third and final practice, is the fact that this imperative of bearing witness throughout history has really pitted correspondence against a vast gamut of uh, lethal threats, of censorship, of surveillance, of manipulation, of denials of access, you name it. However, most correspondents have understood that you do need to be there because it is the only way to get your stories right and to be able to get them in an impactful way. Uh, sometimes this has meant pushing literally up to the limits of no-go zones, which go all the way from Syria to Mexico um, in a whole variety of countries. And the picture that you see here, um, the person not in military fatigues, uh, his name is Mark Stevenson, and in 2010 he did just that. He's there in Ciudad Mir, which is a small town just across the border from Texas, by the way, um, that had become essentially ground zero in the cartel wars. All of its inhabitants had to flee. They were made refugees, essentially, by the cartels. And they wanted to go to a town a little further on, but realized that they couldn't. And this is what Mark told me. We got to the edge of Ciudad Mir, and literally there are spots where you're walking on shell casings, and you're seeing the back of flak jackets, bandoliers tossed on the side of the road, or somebody had obviously got hit. You see that, you see cattle abandoned, wandering over the road, and you see nobody coming up. 
you look at the road for an hour and there's nobody coming up and you're like, there is no way in the world we're going there. So you start to use security protocol, yes, but that's basically, that's your essential security, the places you don't go. Still, you have to be willing to go far enough, as they did, to write a story that, as I said before, can contradict the official lines. And I want to read just a very quick excerpt from the story because it has one of what I think is the greatest lines. So what journalism it really should be all about. So here's a Mark's story. Shell casings carpet the road outside the bullet-riddled subdivision on the outskirts of this colonial town, the most dramatic example so far of the increasing ferocity of war between rival drug cartels and the government's failure to fight back. Not mincing words. The state and federal government say it's safe to go back and that people are returning. One official even invited tourists to return. The scenes witnessed by the Associated Press say something else. I love that. I really do think this is what we're all in the business of doing, of the saying something else. Even during daylight hours, a Mexican army squad patrols the town nervously. A bullet-riddled army pickup truck lies in the yard of the local military outpost, a metallic casualty of an ambush last weekend that locals say killed four soldiers. The army does not even officially recognize it happened. Now, there are other kinds of dangers, very quickly, just because this is, so to speak, a fun story. Um, the person you see there, not in the radiation suits, um, is Eric Talmadge. He was covering, in, he was in Japan in 2011, covering the tsunami, the earthquake and tsunami. When there was an alarm of yet another tsunami wave coming in, he scrambled on a, on a, on a little hill. They're looking around, suddenly there's this really loud blast, so much so that they feel the wave, you know, from, from the blast, and they're thinking that the, the wave hit something, like what was this? Turns out it was the Fukushima reactor exploding. You do not want to be close enough to a nuclear reactor exploding, you can actually feel the blast. Uh, that's why he was getting the Radiation checks. Um, this is how he put it to me. I followed one of the search parties to a parking lot where they were bringing the bodies out of the mud, bringing them to this parking lot and hosing them down and putting them in a van to take them back to the morgue, which I'd also just been to the day before. And I think after an afternoon of watching corpses get hosed down by people in radiation suits, that really made me wonder. It was really an unpleasant experience. And when I went back to wherever it was that we were staying that night, I really wondered, why am I doing this? This is too much. So of course I asked him how he had answered his own question. And he told me very much like Nico had about the uh, mudslides, that he felt it was the only way to tell a faraway audience what it was actually like on the ground. So that, and I quote, he could lay out what the problem was so that people elsewhere could focus more effort on dealing with it. And what I'd like to leave you with is that I really believe that there is a moral dimension, and I use that word advisedly, a moral dimension, this kind of eyewitness reporting that actually drove correspondence and that to me is the strongest reason and rationale as to why none of this can actually be done at a remove. Um, one example, I had to have a British example for you guys because I felt I had to. Um, one of the people that you see there in, well, kind of, with, on, sort of on the top of, of the Land Rover there, uh, his name is Tony Smith, British journalist. Uh, he was kind of the point man in the Bosnian War. Um, they're all standing in front of what of a pizzeria turned AP bureau in, in uh, Sarajevo. And what he ended up doing is when everybody started to evacuate Sarajevo as the Serbian siege closed in, he and five other journalists decided, but that's crazy, if everybody leaves, how are we gonna know what's going on in the town? We should go in. So he ended up driving a uh, tank trap dented Toyota Corolla into the city. I asked him why, and this is what he replied. I really did believe that we had to help the people. Here, by the way, he chuckled and kind of embarrassed, asked me, it sounds twee, right? 
before adding, I owed it most of all to the people, to the people in the ex-Yugoslavia. The whole situation was so bad and it was so ludicrously unjust that I felt that I had to. So the last question that I want to pose, and I hope we can tackle it in the Q&A, is perhaps the most cynical one that you can ask. Does any of this actually make a difference? Which is another way of saying, does any of this actually matter? And instead of answering it myself, I want to play one last clip from um, another correspondent I interviewed, uh, Terry Anderson, who was covering the Lebanese Civil War. You see here some of the scenes um, from what the streets looked like in the mid-80s um, in southern Lebanon. He was based in Beirut. Uh, when he was kidnapped by Hezbollah. He was held for almost seven years, if you can even conceptualize that. Most of the time bound hand and foot in a succession of dark cells before being released in 1991. He was the longest held Western hostage at the time that he was released. I interviewed him 21 years later in his sunshine-filled home in Florida. He's showing me there a plaque that he received seven years later um, for being reporter of the year, the year he was actually captured. He told me that's the one I earned, not the badges for being a hostage, for being a reporter. So of course I had to ask, I said, Terry, you know, honestly, you paid an enormous price um, for this. Now nobody, no story is worth a life or, you know, seven years of your life in a cell beaten every day, but you knew you were running risk. Why? Why did you do what you do? And I'd like to close by playing his answer for you. So this is Terry Anderson. Did I have any effect? There is nobody I can point to and no situation I can point to other than a very small way to say that I helped that person as a reporter, that I changed that situation, I helped find a solution. I don't believe I can do that. I don't very many journalists can do that. Okay. So where is the value in what we do? What we do is find and tell the truth as best we can in situations where everybody's lying and it's very difficult to do that and often dangerous to do that, very dangerous these days. More than a thousand journalists have been killed in the last 20 years doing their job. That's just one's doing their job. Um, and the number's going up every year. I think it's about 200 this year. You have to believe in the inherent value of doing that, of telling the truth, of finding and telling the truth, no matter what happens, whether people listen, whether things change, whether anybody goes to jail, and sometimes they do. In order to understand and do this job, because then the ethics become simpler. Anything that keeps you from doing that is unethical, is wrong. Now, I also have the personal experience of working with journalists around the world in many, many countries who go to work every day to risk their lives or their freedom um, to find and tell the truth. I don't know if I do that every day, but I talk to people who do. Released for some of them. So you ask them if it's important. Also, ask the people who do that to them. Ask the people who kill them and beat them and put them in prison whether it's important. 
because they all know you cannot have a free society without a free press. Period. You cannot oppress the people who can't steal from them. You can't take away their rights in the face of a free and active press. That's why they go after the journalists. That's why everybody hates journalists. No, we're not all wonderful people. We're not all even very good at the job we do. And there are constraints, institutional constraints, societal constraints that keep us from achieving this wonderful goal of finding and telling the truth. But most of the journalists that I know are highly idealistic people with a firm sense of outrage. They try to do that as best they can. So yeah, I think it was worthwhile. I think it was worth doing. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much indeed. For, uh,